Well, hi there. It's great to be with you again. Uh, We're in a little series on the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is probably the most densely packed with gospel goodness, spiritual espresso-like book in the whole Bible. I mean, it's like taking a shot of espresso. It's like there's no extra fluff or or foam or milk or water. It's just like an intense gospel grace package that wakes you up and makes you go, whoa, this is a remarkable amount of good news in a very short space of time. And probably the most intense bit of the letter when it comes to the amount of grace packed in per sentence is the passage we're going to read today, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's about 200 words long, and in it, Paul pins down and crystallizes for us exactly what the difference is between Christianity and all other systems of thought, religious or otherwise, that have ever been. So if you're not a Christian today, it may well seem to you that all religions are roughly equivalent, that basically they have broadly the same structure. There's some differences here and there, but basically they all involve a God who wants to be worshipped and who wants you to live in a particular way. And if you do live in that particular way, you get to go to heaven with them and live forever. Now, that's actually not a bad summary of Islam, the essential truth of Islam, but the essential truths of all other religions are not remotely like that. Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. Hindus don't believe you go to heaven when you die nor do most pagans. And Christians don't believe that the reason you do go to heaven when you die, if you do, is because of the way you have behaved. Christians don't believe that salvation or rescue or eternal life or whatever you want to call it is something that comes to you because of the way you've lived your life. Christians believe that salvation comes to you because of the way somebody else has lived their life. And his name is Jesus. And that is a foundational difference between Christianity and all other religious systems. It, the story's told of uh, C.S. Lewis, the author, and theologian, and medieval scholar that uh, many of us would know from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Narnia books, and so on. Lewis walks into a conversation in which a number of people from different religious traditions are discussing the distinctives of each religion. And they're talking about Christianity, and they what's the thing that's uniquely Christian? What is the thing that Christianity holds to that is not true of other religious systems? And Lewis walks into the conversation and says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. What I would I'd define it as the unmerited transforming favor of God. The unmerited transforming favor of God. Lewis is saying, that's the distinctive. That's what Christians hold to. That's what we stake the entire of our faith on, is the idea that God has been good to us in spite of the fact we didn't deserve it. Not because I've lived a worthwhile life, but because I haven't needed lived a worthwhile life and I've needed a rescuer and he's come to me and I've trusted in him for my rescue. And as we read through these 10 verses, we're going to see how grace works, how it functions, how, it, how Paul thinks about it. And we're going to see what has happened to us and what the reason for that isn't and then what the reason for that is. What has happened to us in the gospel in Christ? What the reason isn't? And what the reason is. Let's read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich 
in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them this is the word of God this is a short summary of what has happened to us in Christ we were dead verses 1 to 3 but we have been raised to new life in Christ verses 5 to 6 and we have been seated with him in heavenly places verses 6 to 7 all right we were dead but we've been raised and we have been seated that's what hap- that's what's happened to us in Christ Paul is saying that's the shape of the Christian message in a sense dead you were dead that's where you start that's an unusual start to any paragraph but this is where Paul wants you to know you were and I was you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked verse 1 that's where the story starts and that's not how most of us like to think about our sins I suspect right we tend in our culture to play down sin we tend to use euphemisms for it we say things like mistakes were made or yeah if I had my time again I'd do things differently or I have a difficult past or I had a checkered this that or the other or we use you know lots of ways of understating the influence of the power of sin in our lives and we tend to use the word sin when we do use it for something quite different we tend to use the word sin for high calorie foods or indulgent treats right that's how the word has come to function in modern English doesn't it what we don't tend to do is to say what Paul says here which say I was dead I was so corrupted, I was so owned by this power that was greater than I was, I was so enslaved to the passions of my flesh that I was a corpse, I was a spirit, I was a zombie, I, I, was, I was alive but not really alive, I followed the world, I followed the flesh and I followed the devil and I was a child of wrath like everybody else. That's how Paul talks about the state of being in sin, he says you were dead, so was I, I we're all Gollum in our old lives right we just like my precious we want to hold on to this thing but it's rotting us from the inside we want sin we cherish it we nurture it we look after it we spend our whole lives longing for it and it degrades us until we are nothing but a shell of a person and Paul's saying that's you and Tolkien of course is a deeply Christian writer creates the character of Gollum partly to show us what sin does to a person wasting away out of love for the precious we were dead and Paul wants you to know that but then from being dead we were raised verses four to six but God even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him what has happened to us in Christ is nothing less than a raising from the dead you see what happens if you if you play down how dead you were you actually play down how dramatic what salvation is but if instead you recognize i was dead i was in the grave 
than when God comes and makes me alive. The glory of that salvation, rescue, the grace of God, and what it accomplishes in my life and yours is far grander and greater. We have been not just made better, we have been made alive and incorporated into the one who has risen from the dead and we've been raised with in him. This isn't a picture of people who are offered a new lifestyle and decide to take it. Have you ever been at the station and somebody there is just sort of handing out, of course you have, right? Someone's handing out flyers, maybe not so much in the current months, but you know what I mean? They're handing out flyers and they might be flyers for anything. It could be a new shop, it could be a gig, it could be a religion, but they're handing things out and effectively saying, consider this. Why don't you have a look at this and you take it and you might look at it, oh, interesting, or no, probably not, and you stick it in the bin. That's not the picture here. God standing, handing out flyers. Hey, do you want to consider Jesus? Do you want to consider Christianity? Yeah, and then we make the decision whether or not we want it. And if we do, we become Christians. And if we don't, we don't. That's not the picture of salvation that Paul is using here. Paul is picturing us not outside the station. Paul's picturing us in the graveyard, right? We're six feet under. And God is walking around the graveyard amongst the tombstones, breathing life into the graves and causing us to rise. That's the picture here. It's Ezekiel 37, if you know that passage in the Old Testament. There's a valley full of just dry bones, almost like, a, like an elephant graveyard or something, but with human bones everywhere and skulls everywhere. And God steps in by the prophetic power of his word and breathes life into the bones and the bones form flesh, come together, stand up and become a great army. That's the picture Paul is using. You were dead. You, this, was a, this was a land of corpses and the breath of God's life came in by the spirit and the word and raised you to life. It's like that scene again in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where all the statues, the ones that have been turned into stone by the white witch are all kind of caught in these action shots that they just can't move. They're, they're made of stone. And then Aslan steps in to the courtyard and begins to breathe. <sighs> and the breath of the king brings life to these stone statues and they turn back into live, fully functioning people. You were dead. You've been raised. And having been raised, we have been seated. Verse 6, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so for Paul, in one sense, he is seated in jail, as we've seen in this series already. He's seated in prison. But he's also seated in the heavenly places. He wants the reality of that seating to affect the way he thinks about this seating. And we touched on this point a couple of weeks ago. I told the story about when I got upgraded uh, on an airline because of a friend of ours, and I had been seated in business class in the heavenly places because of my identification with someone else. Well, now imagine that's just happened to me and you bump into me in the airport and I say, have you heard the news? I've been upgraded, I mean, it wouldn't be very sensitive, but I could say, I've been upgraded to business class. I'm seated in business class. And you say to me, you're not seated anywhere. You haven't been seated at all. You're standing up and you're standing in the foyer. Why on earth do you think you've been seated anywhere, you idiot? I would say to you, yeah, I know I'm not currently sitting down yet and all is at rest, but my destiny has changed. And that changes everything. That changes the queue I join, the lounge I can use, the seat I have in the airline, and my perspective on everything before and since. That seat is mine. And I'm going to rejoice knowing that that's where I'm destined to be sat. You see, Paul is recognizing the fact that in a sense, you have already been seated in heavenly places in Christ. Spiritually, if you like, that's where you are. Even though your physical body is going to have to wait a while before it finally sees the fulfillment of that promise. You and I have not just gone from death to life. We've gone from death to life to being seated in heaven with Jesus. 
Hallelujah. So some astonishing things have happened to us in Christ. But as Paul tells us about them, he keeps doing something a bit surprising. He keeps telling us what the reason for that process is not. He keeps saying, this is why this hasn't happened. Make no mistake, you haven't got it. So he keeps saying things like, you were dead, right? Not even slightly alive, not even just a little bit dozy or a little bit troubled or whatever it might be. You were dead. He keeps telling us, you are by nature children of wrath, even when you were dead. He says things like, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. He keeps saying things like, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's like Paul just keeps hammering why this hasn't happened. He's, for Paul, it seems to be extremely important that you understand not just what has happened to you in Christ, but why it hasn't happened. And he wants you to know that these extraordinary privileges are yours, not because of your own doing or my own works. They're simply the gifts of God. And for Paul, that's at the heart of this passage. Do not think, you need to know what's happened to you in Christ, but you mustn't believe it's because of this. You mustn't believe it's because your works or your efforts or your own doing has secured this for you. And that is at the heart of the difference between Christianity and every other belief system, religious or otherwise. So many pagan religions would see a strong link between sacrificing to the gods and good weather or harvests that what you want and what the gods give you is a result of what you have offered them that's how many pagan religions work several eastern religions teach karma the idea that our good deeds contribute to a good future many secular people actually operate on a very similar principle that we are you might not want to be counted righteous by a god you might want to be counted righteous by your peer group or by your nation or by history in the future or whatever it may be but you are counted righteous on the basis of your works. And so the question is, have I done enough? It's the question they ask at the end of the, Hamilton, the musical, isn't it? Have I done enough? Are they gonna do, am, I, am I gonna go down in history as a good person because of all these things I've done? Have my good works made up for my shortcomings, my failures, or even have they made up for my privileges and the amount that I've been given? And so there's a works, what we call works righteousness dynamic to many of these systems. Yeah, actually the clearest place you can see it, I think, is in children. My children have naturally lawish hearts. They have a strong sense of fairness, which is a good thing. And so they are inclined naturally to think that people love them or commend them because they've behaved well or achieved stuff. So kids, more than almost anybody else, need grace, grace, grace to be lavished upon them because they don't naturally think that way. None of us do. We are born into the world thinking I am loved because I do this. And as a parent of three kids, I have to continually remind them, I love you because you are my children, not because you have behaved well. I love you when you're good. I love you when you're naughty. I love you all the time. I'm never going to stop. I have to keep telling my children this. And they often, you can see, particularly as they're younger, they don't find it very hard to, to, very easy to understand because it cuts against this natural sense we have of lawish hearts that we are rewarded rather than given the things that happen to us in our lives. And as children of God, we need to keep hearing the same thing from our father that my children need to hear from their father. We need to keep hearing from the father of lights. I don't love you because you know your Bible. 
or because you pray, or because you give generously. I'm glad you do those things, but that's not why I love you. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, so no one can boast. I love you because I love you. I love you because my heart towards you is rich in mercy. It's not because you accomplished something that made you seem lovely to me. It's because of something I've done in creating you that way, and I will never stop loving you, whether you're good, whether you're naughty, all the time. So Paul wants us to see what has happened to us in Christ, but he also wants us to see the reason isn't because of your own doing and your own works. And the reason why we think it is, the reason why we think like that, as if our works are why God loves us, is because we assume that God is basically like us. We take our human limitations and we project them up onto God, as if he has the same law-ish sort of heart that we do but God's God's heart is not law-ish God's heart is lavish do you know that God's heart is not law-ish it's lavish it is relentless abundant bountiful overflowing gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy So Paul wants us to see what the reason for our salvation isn't. It's not because of our works, but he also wants us to be crystal clear on what the reason is. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is a stunning threefold statement about the heart of God. And if you let it sink into your soul, if you meditate on that, that sentence every day this week, you put that up on your mirror or your fridge or wherever you put it, allow that to sink into your soul. It will give you a reassurance and a joy like almost nothing else in the world. God is rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, he's rich in mercy he's great in love he is immeasurable in grace you get out all the rulers and all the systems and all of the light year projections and everything you can in the whole of space and you try and measure the mercy of god and his grace and you just can't do it it's immeasurable it's beyond counting he has shown mercy to us because he loves us and because he wants to spend eternity pouring his grace into our lives that's what paul says god's rich in mercy And so what he's done is he's raised us up so that in the age to come, he might keep pouring all of that love and kindness and grace over our lives forever and ever. That's why he's done it. You think that's not a reason? Surely there's something in me that has merited it. And God says, no, it's not because of anything you've done. It's because I want to pour the lavishness of the overwhelming love and grace, bubbling up, gushing over you like a fountain forever and ever. And I want to do that for all time. And that's why I've raised you to new life in my son. And we, we don't always think about God like that. I put it to you that you probably don't. I'm a pastor. I, don't, I read the Bible a lot, but I, I don't naturally default to thinking of God. I, I go with the lawish rather than the lavish. I find it so easy to default. We think of mercy as something that you need to wring out of him sometimes if we're not careful, rather than something that so characterizes God's heart that it flows out of him all the time, infinitely, without us even doing anything to try and warrant it. I have a golden retriever. He's a giant, you know, lion-like dog, really huge, big, hairy, blonde thing. And he is rich in hair. 
Like he's a seriously hairy dog. We met with uh, Phil and Sarah Varley, who most of you know, and we met with them for a walk in the woods a few weeks ago. And they made the mistake of sort of patting him and, you know, getting near him. And within seconds, their trousers, their clothes, jackets, hands are just covered in thick blonde hair. Right? He's rich in hair. You, you get anywhere near him and it just spills off him. Even a glancing contact, even if you aren't trying to, you just get covered in hair because there's so much of it. And you've got swirls of yellow dog hair on you for days because he's just rich in it. And it comes off him all the time without him even realizing and without you even intending it. God's mercy is like that. You get anywhere near almighty God and you will find that his lavish gracious benevolence comes cascading off him and all over your clothing and you won't be able to get rid of it for days no matter how hard you try mercy pours out from him it swamps you it covers you with the abundant riches and lavishness of the grace and kindness of God and it will carry on doing so forever and ever it pours out from him and that's the reason why you have been gone from being dead to being raised to being seated. It's not because of your works. It's because he's rich in mercy and in grace and in loving kindness. And he's going to spend eternity showing you how rich he is. One of the, well, probably the best Christian book I've read this year. It's a stunning book. I really heartily recommend it to all of you. A book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. It's about the heart of God and the heart of God in Christ. It's such a beautiful devotional book that you just read in your quiet time if you do that and just find God meeting with you. It's a beautiful book. But here's a paragraph from his book which I think will help you as we land this message just to understand what we're saying about and what Paul is saying about the riches of the mercy of God. Dane Ortland says this, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Brothers and sisters, that's true. The day will come when we see God face to face and we will be astonished at how far we had lowballed his mercy. And we will find such relief and comfort on that day that grace comes to you that the loving kindness of God in Christ comes to you to raise you and seat you with him in heavenly places not because of your works so that no one may boast but because God is rich in mercy on that day Dane Orland says we'll weep with relief I think I will I think you will too it'll be a great day we serve a gracious merciful God let's pray Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the riches of grace that we are only just beginning to plumb as we consider these truths, these texts. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for the mercy of God. Lord, would you, would you melt our lawish hearts and enable us to experience the lavishness of the heart of God. Lord, in our, whatever circumstances, we 
the many, many hundreds of people watching this, we experience different challenges this week, but all of us need your grace, Lord. Some of us are doing great. Some of us are really hanging on with our fingernails. But Lord, we all need to know the grace of God in Christ and the level of the mercy of God and the abundance of your kindness to us in Christ. I pray you'd reveal that beautiful truth to us as we sing, as we pray, as we go about our family lives and our work lives and our home lives lord i pray you would write on us again the wonders of what it is to be loved by god and we pray this in jesus name amen